Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I hope you all are doing well, staying safe, hopefully getting those vaccines, and of course, watching lots and lots of movies. And if you're on the East Coast, I hope you are finally enjoying the sunshine and getting all that vitamin D we've been deprived of over the last five or six months. So if you're listening to this right now, you know what films we're talking about. And if you know me, you know that I am all about the cult shows and films, and especially folk horror films. Honestly, if you make a movie about, like, any cult, it could be a cult that worships water bottles, for all I care. I will be right there with my flower crown and my creepy glances. So, naturally, the original Wicker Man is one of my favorite horror films ever, and especially one of my favorite folk horror films ever. And then there's the remake. Mmm. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say there's a lot to get into, so much that just myself, your friendly neighborhood podcast host, I couldn't possibly cover all of it. So for this pairing, I brought in some reinforcements. What's even more insane than the remake is that I kind of sort of changed my mind about the films. And also, if you know me, you know I'm very stubborn. I almost never change my mind about any film, so I'm very impressed with my guests. So get ready to get really funny and Really weird with myself, Rich Dambolian, and Alex Kalagianis while we talk about 1973's The Wicker Man and its infamous 2006 remake starring Nicolas Cage. I mean, you, you, you've got fake, fake, fake biology, fake religion. Sir, have these children never had a Jesus? Do sit down, Sergeant. Sharks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. How'd it get burned? How'd it get burned? How'd it get burned? How'd it get burned? I don't know! By day, Rich is a New York City photographer and podcaster, and Alex is a car test driver and reviewer whose reviews have been published in Forbes Wheels, Gear Patrol, and Motor Authority. By night, they are the hosts of Film Class Zeros, which will be premiering soon on all major podcast platforms. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Rich Stambolian and Alex Kalagianis to Girl Presses Play. Yay. Wow. That was Hooray. awesome. Thank you. Okay, awesome. <laughs> wow. So I'm going to start us off with kind of like the hard-ish question. Is there absolutely anything that we liked about the 2006 remake? Everything. Yeah, believe it or not, there are <laughs> things that I genuinely enjoyed about this movie. I'm making a shocked face for all of y'all that can't see it, but <laughs> I will admit there's one or two things where I don't know if I liked them, but I saw the potential in them. If That's that fair. Makes sense. Like there was yeah. an aspect where I'm like, oh, they just kind of 
did a little more of this or a little more of that, it would have been really, really cool. What did you guys actually really like about the film? (laughs) So I have a theory about Nicolas Cage, which I feel like is kind of slowly making its way into the mainstream. And that theory is after... I want to say like leaving Las Vegas and after Con Air, like Con Air was the first movie that I think like he went completely overboard into what is he's transformed into. And that trajectory follows suit with every movie after that. And definitely Wicker Man. I love terrible movies. Not to say that this is a terrible movie, oh. but yo, he is so bananas <laughs> in this movie. He is bananas. He is so bananas in this movie. And that really did it for me. Whenever there was just like a quiet scene, there was a shot of him going, (laughs) (laughs) and I, and I giggle, I'd always giggle. I mean, like it's hard not to laugh at the yelling, him going nuts. As soon as he gets to Summer Isle and goes to the bar and he goes, yeah, I'll settle in. Just give me a drink first. Oh yeah, that's good. And he slams his phone down on the table and he's like, by the way, I'm here to investigate a missing girl. And they're all like, dude, we're trying to enjoy ourselves. I've never heard your Nicolas Cage voice before. Is that a good thing? Or or do you want me to not do it? I just feel like we've reached another level of closeness. All right, cool. I'm cool with that. The the closer, the better. I don't think you can talk about this movie and not slip into a Nicolas Cage uh, voice. It's it's very difficult. It's like the Michael Caine impersonation. Like everyone. Oh, for sure. Well, to to touch on what Rich was saying, that the movie was kind of funny in those quiet moments because it just gave Nicolas Cage time to react to everything. And it was interesting to watch the movie weird out Nicolas Cage when it's usually the other way around, where he's (laughs) getting out weirded by (laughs) the things that are happening around him. And he's even making that face going like, this is even too crazy for me. Oh, my Lord. I find that to be very interesting because I felt like Comparing this to the original Robin Hardy film, I feel like this is the kind of watered down, normalized version. Because the one thing I couldn't find on the internet was more of like how much the studio did or didn't get involved and make cuts that they shouldn't have made or, you know, sanctioned rewrites that they shouldn't have sanctioned because the 1973 one is so weird. Like there's a scene where he walks through a graveyard and there's a woman breastfeeding a baby just holding an egg. And then he like makes a little wooden cross. Like it's so strange that movie. And this feels like the kind of watered down. They tried to make it weird in the way that your grandma thinks dying your hair pink is weird. <laughs> huh. It's like the edge, the edge lord stuff. Yeah, the edge lord stuff. But like I will admit, I thought the production design was really cool. I thought the music. Pop- Ooh, I hated the music. I really, really? hated the music. Yeah. I thought it was so I hate when it's oh, this is the scary part. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is when the jump scare is going to come in. And it was so indicative for me. Like, I feel like this movie, my biggest problem is that it treated the audience as very stupid. Oh, for sure. They, they yeah. treated the audience very as very, very, very stupid. And I thought the music was like the biggest culprit of that. Um, really? Yeah. I'm going to disagree I, with you. Mm. hard disagree with you maybe this uh, should be on the Matt Men podcast because I feel like if we were in person we'd just start punching each other no and it would be more uh, inappropriate Angelo Angelo Badalamente did the music for this movie Angelo Badalamente did the music for Twin Peaks so for me there was a lot of similarities between the ominous tones that were used for both and he's very to me he's he's the perfect dude for ominous tones in like a film score you know mm-hmm. and yes it was on the nose but I feel like it worked because the movie was so hokey and they leaned into it. Okay, that's fair. I would maybe, 
because my boyfriend hasn't watched this yet and he loves terrible movies. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe rewatching it with that in mind would make me less literally angry about the music. Oh my God. You, you were like, you're like driven well, to, to anger so because picky. of the, like, the music. Oh yeah. I was driven to anger. And I think also what made me even more angry was like the fake feminism. In the, uh, the remake, right? Oh yeah. In the remake. Um, mm -hmm. Cause like, I love the idea of, you know, Ellen Burstyn is this matriarch and it's this island of women. And I think because the main cop is a guy and she's just treating everybody like she's like, listen up, I'm here to investigate a murder. Is that your Nicolas Cage impression? I'm trying. I've never had to do a Nicolas Cage impression. Listen up, guys. I'm Barney Rubble and I'm here to investigate this girl. It's slowly edging into like my favorite Nick Cage impression because it's just so, it's just a great take. <laughs> oh, thank you, Alex. Thank you. It's gonna um, apply that to every Nicolas Cage movie now. It's like ah, Ghost Rider. So, I'm one of the Ghost <laughs> <laughs> Rider. Oh trying to think of other Nick Cage movies to to inject that voice in. He took my face off, and now it's on his face. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen. You're the Rocket Man. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. What's the oh? I'm gonna steal the Declaration of <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Which I secret I shouldn't say secretly love. <sighs> National Treasure is my favorite. Like it's 2 p.m. on a Sunday. I'm totally beat. I want mm. something that's like easy, digestible, and fun. Oh, I know. I'm gonna watch National mm. Treasure because I've seen it five times. And I know exactly what's going to happen. We got to put that on our list. You know what? It's yes. ridiculous, but it's fun. National Treasure knew how to have fun with the genre and the way the Wicker Man was like, so dead serious. Fair enough. You know, honestly, like the three of us could probably do a Nicolas Cage themed podcast. <gasps> where there's so many could fucking movies that this guy does. Mm -hmm. it, it's insane. It's really insane. Like Vicky and I tried to... We tried to make our way through like every Nicolas Cage movie that's on streaming at some point during the pandemic. And we got pretty far. Why? <laughs> I gotta say. Why would you do that to yourself? Honest, yo, I have a thing with Nicolas Cage where like he's, I think after his Oscar, he won the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, right? Yes. Yeah. After he won the Oscar, I think because he came back. A, he, he's such a fan. <laughs> he's such a fan of movies and he's born into the business. I really think he consciously went, hey, you know, I got the award for being the best. I think now it's time to really go nuts and maybe, maybe be the worst on purpose. And that's every movie, dude. It's great. Ghost Rider, fucking terrible. It's great. Face Off, terrible. Great. Con Air, I fucking love that movie, dude. I, I just haven't don't seen think any of the newer stuff like Mandy or Colorado Space. Mandy's awesome. Colorado Space is awesome. They're all awesome, dudes. <laughs> have, you, have you seen the the new one where it's like the Five Nights at Freddy's ripoff sort of thing where he's just like in an amusement uh, thing overnight and he's killing the, the animatronics? I feel no, like I'm going to need a lot that. of drugs or alcohol to watch that. Yeah. If I uh, watched, that's appropriate. He made a movie. Film. He made an awesome movie. I think it's on Hulu with Frodo. I forgot what that was, what it was called, but it was like both with of them. Frodo. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Elijah Wood, but it wasn't, it wasn't Mr. Frodo. But you know. this guy's got hairy feet. It's weird. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. He's got hairy feet. It's weird. Well, look it up. Pick up your hairy feet and put it on my face. <laughs> oh, now we're getting into some. He, it's called he, The Trust. The Trust. Very, very good. Um, Do you trust me with your hairy feet? 
<laughs> very, very good. They rob like some kind of diamond exchange. Nice, quick, punchy hour and a half. Fun, stupid movie. I'm not saying they're good movies. They're stupid. <laughs> Go. Stupid fucking movie. Gone in I, 60 seconds. Stupid I, fucking movies. Great. <laughs> I, yeah, well, that's a very stupid movie. Okay. The one thing I sort of like, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to contradict you, but like the whole thing about like, oh, I think Nicolas Cage is doing this on purpose. I'm like, I don't get that vibe, but there's a level of self-awareness or lack thereof there. And I don't know where he's at, mm -hmm. but I think all of that stuff is very genuine. I don't think he's like, I don't think he's putting on a, a Nicolas Cage act. You know, well, I think he's he... trying very hard mm -hmm. and this is the result. Didn't he like have some tax issues where he owed the government like a lot of money and basically just needed to do every movie he could get his hands on to like pay the government back? I thought that yeah. was one of the reasons that he was running into like financial issues and he just needed to get as many jobs as possible in order to not yeah, work I think, in jail. I think you're right because I think that he had like a similar to um, the mm -hmm. Johnny Depp thing, but it's like less creepy or it's just like it's like the Johnny Depp scenario, but just with money and not like the domestic violence. Mm -hmm. and right, he right. just like he bought like a bunch of ridiculous things just like he had like a dinosaur's skull mm -hmm. and he's like oh i just really wanted it you know and i think even um there was like an old inside the actor studio with john travolta and even he's mm -hmm. like yeah nick cage is weird <laughs> you know? and when you have john travolta being like yeah that guy's kind of a weirdo that's a weird dude too or he was just like i just wanted to buy some glass and he's like what when you make like when you bring travolta to like speechlessness you've out weirded travolta I think that's definitely like, that's sending a signal. Yeah, I do feel like, because I know in a lot of articles, you said, oh, well, it was meant to be a satire. And like, we were all kind of in on the joke. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out if they were actually in on the joke or if Nicolas Cage was smart enough to start that dialogue before everyone realized how bad the movie was. I, I mean, I definitely think that this was a very earnest attempt at making a scary remake of this cult classic film. I think that the, that is sort of like backpedaling based on the reaction and the sort of atmosphere that sort of surrounds this movie. And in fact, I think that atmosphere kind of really sort of warps the lens of both these movies. Just because before we even um, started this, I hadn't seen these movies because like I, I mentioned to you before that the, the folk horror genre is something that doesn't really like draw me in and I, I tend to avoid mm -hmm. it. So when we set up to watch these movies, I'm going like, okay, I'm definitely going outside of my comfort zone here, especially with the the legend of the, the first one where it's supposed to be, you know, the quote unquote, the citizen Kane of horror movies and things like that. And based on what I know of the remake, the Nicolas Cage one, that definitely made me think that, oh, if this weird Nicolas Cage movie is the way it is, this freaky, like much revered 70s movie has to be completely bonkers and, and it's going to be super disturbing. So the legend of this movie sort of peppered the original one, just looking like it has like that mm. warping effect where you look back at this other movie and then watching both of these back to back, I came out in the other end with a completely different view of what they were. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, what we thought of both of these films after watching them, not together together, because like I watched The Wicker Man on a Sunday night, the Nicolas Cage one, and then I watched the original one again, because I had seen it, but I hadn't seen it in like a while, so I figured I'd give myself a refresher, um, mm -hmm. and I watched that Monday night, and I think for me... I mean, first of all, one of my first notes for the 2006 one was Papyrus, really? The second <laughs> one is, was that Aaron Eckhart's for two seconds? Oh, sure. And they tried to quote it as like, oh, well, it was the original font used in the original Wicker Man. No, mm -hmm. I looked it up. Papyrus was created in 1982 and oh, the wow. original Wicker Man came out in 1973. So don't try to pull that with me, sir or madam who wrote that IMDb trivia. 
Wow. Can I can I share my first four notes? Yes. Okay. So my first four notes for Wicker Man 1973 are plane looks like a toy at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> what a soundtrack. Immediately hooked. Then I wrote corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bond. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fourth note is will you send a dinghy? And I think Nicolas Cage was like, he saw it and he went, oh, I can say that. Will you send a dinghy? <laughs> and like, I think he gravitated towards that line because he can hear himself yell it, but he doesn't yell it in the movie. I just think like I'm projecting in a projection that doesn't exist. And I feel like he was like, yeah, you know, like, I love that movie. Why not? Why not? Why not make it crazy? Do you think in the, throughout the movie, he's not looking for Rowan? He's just looking for the dinghy. I think he's looking for the, 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 ding, the, the Rowan represents the dinghy from the original movie. And you know, like I'm looking for a dinghy. I mean, a girl, sorry. We'll do it again. Also, also my, my next two notes are don't make me swim at you. And that cop has got a big ass. It's a very flattering uniform. <laughs> I dug the, I, I really, enjoy, I watched it with my wife because we never saw the original and, mm. I was like, hey, I got to do this podcast on Saturday. You want to watch this thing with me? She's like, absolutely. Christopher Lee's in it. Sold. Great. You know, both of us really, really enjoyed it and really laughed our asses off during most of that movie. There's a lot of weird comedy in it. Like I'm thinking yeah. of the landlord's daughter song and what was mm -hmm. the other thing I was thinking <laughs> of? Um like when he just walks through the field and everyone's having sex in it and he just kind of like goes back into the into the hotel like there's plenty of really weird funny moments or when christopher lee is in drag oh my god also ridiculous and hilarious but also terrifying at the same time he when you know like you just mentioned like the landlord's daughter song the cop in the first one he's just very irate and upset during the entire movie like you can tell like the comparison is Nicolas Cage feels compelled to go to this island because it's his fiance ex-fiance right mm -hmm. in the original this is just a guy doing his job and he's so irate that he has to be there this is one of the funny uh sort of results that or conclusions I came up with uh, at the end of watching both of them is that the the remake does a better job at setting up certain things and uh, construction wise it's actually more solid than i expected in the sense that like they set up nicholas cage's motivation and the kind of person he is and why he's there way better than this guy well officer howie in the first one and yeah like what richard's saying he just sort of like shows up and inserts himself into a bunch of things and gets really mad and pretty much stays like that to the end of the movie mm -hmm. you know and then well like whereas nicholas cage is sort of like from beginning to end again the movie did a actually did a pretty good job of like setting up he was set up from the start and you can connect all the dots to that and it works and in this one it's sort of like oh yeah there was a master plan but when they sort of reveal it, it you can't really you know go back through the movie and going oh yeah no that perfectly makes sense it doesn't it's sort of like all right we are as the audience again like sort of injected into this thing without having been told anything and while I appreciate not being uh, having my hand being held throughout it, that was one of the things where like the, the remake was superior to the original. Like the original, mm -hmm. like do those weird scenes and people having sex and, and stuff like that. The construction of the movie was very interesting. And there was like a lot of people just like looking down the barrel and smiling and giggling because it's like a bunch of like villagers and people's friends in the movie making up the ensemble. Yeah, they did use a lot of local actors. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to try to like take away my hate of papyrus and the music in the film. 
but I do see that being a very good point of the remake selling the why spoiler alert for anyone who could not see it coming from 20 miles away like why he gets picked as the human sacrifice and I don't know I also think there's a little more okay well they have technology they can like look into these things. So it does make a little more sense. And I couldn't find it, but I recently found this out from the celluloid mirror that did an episode on the Wicker Man where there's like a post credit scene where James Franco and Jason Ritter are at a bar and like two of the girls from mm-hmm. Summer Isle are there basically like trying to pick them up to breed with and probably sacrifice a couple of summers later. Lily um, Sobieski, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it was Lily Sobieski. So I do think there was a little more of, okay, I see this is why they do what they do. That being said, I kind of liked how the film, the original, leaned a little more into like the dreamlike aspects of it, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like randomly playing corn rigs and barley and corn rigs and barley and (laughs) that whole singing sequence with the landlord's daughter that just kind of happens and you're not really sure whether he's asleep or not. Because I like when it leans just how trippy it is. Because I feel like the first film understands a lot more. Your audience knows exactly where this is going they're not dumb so let's just have like fun on that journey whereas the wicker man actually thinks that people don't know what's going to happen so my question to you guys is which uh, the version i watched didn't have the the weird torture scene at the end and mm-hmm. they sort of oh. they it was like it, it wasn't i want to say um uh, censored but they they cut it out and his screaming was they just did like an L cut and you just heard it over other scenes and then it had the six months later post credit scene with james franco which is kind of mm-hmm. weird so what i want to ask you guys is did you see the same version as i did or did you say no. the, this different version i got the not the bees version yeah which is the youtube version i think right. like, depending on what platform you watch it on you get one or the other because i know some people said mm-hmm. they took a not the bees out but the version i watched had the whole torture and the not the bees moment mm-hmm. interesting so, so the unrated version is the not the bees one that's the one you watched alana uh oh. alex and i watched the theatrical release oh. version of not the theatrical release it's the uh, i the think it was release. The, the home release of it. Mm-hmm. I've watched this movie in the past on a bootleg when those things still existed, like DVD bootlegs. R.I.P. bootlegs. And yeah, R.I.P. <laughs> DVD bootlegs, man. Like I used to get them for like five bucks each. And I think I paid five bucks for the original release of this. And I remember watching it and it had that full-blown B montage in the version that Alex and I watched this week. I'm assuming you rented it from Amazon like I did? Uh, yeah, it was uh, like through Apple TV or whatever, like iTunes, I guess. Yeah, so like yeah. that that version, the end is him going, ah, my legs. And then it's his gurgling over what they're doing to him. You know, like the setup, mm-hmm. carrying him, the pagan ceremony and all that stuff. I have a question for you, Alana. Yes. Did you pick these movies because you love Midsummer? Probably. Subconsciously. I think you Subcon- love that movie yeah. a lot, even though it's not as good as Hereditary. <laughs> interesting i'm gonna fight you on that as well because i actually think the reverse mm-hmm. because Alex. i think midsomar played with the comedy a lot more and had a little uh, bit of those like moments of brevity where you could just kind of go mm-hmm. okay like we're here and we're dancing around the maypole and it's fine and then we're getting into the crazy shit whereas hereditary was so relentless yeah i thought i was going to have to turn it off and i'm not oh, wow. usually one that turns off but spoiler alert for hereditary when you see her fucking like 
head on the side of the road when Tony Collette is screaming for her daughter mm-hmm. to come back. A- I'm just like Alex I- has no interest in watching any of this. By the yeah. way, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making like, like all like my faces movie. are just. <laughs> it's that kind. I'm of just movie. making horrible faces here. You can't see it. I'm just like. Ugh. But we can't <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, like I said, I'm a horror girl, and that movie got to the point where I was like, I don't know if I can watch the rest of this. But then I made myself watch it the rest of it, and I had to sleep with the lights on for four nights. okay well on that note on that note and going back to that scene that scene how important do you think the um the torture porn scene is in the whole package of the the remake and and also uh, how it affects the first one that is a very good question because i think it's so hard to take away the like not the bees Right. I feel like that's the big like cult classic, not the bees, you know, if they did like mm-hmm. midnight screenings, that's the line that everyone would scream. So it's interesting. I don't actually think of it as the torture scene as much as I think of it as just the not the bees scene. Right. I think for the 2006 Wicker Man, it's important, but I don't think like that's what made it separate for me from the 1973 version, which is so much about like religion and what people choose to believe like when he's singing the hymns and he's doing that kind of like giving himself last rites before he burns in the wicker man right Mm -hmm. i thought it really drove home like okay this is a film about what people believe whereas the wicker man i was like so is this about women being evil if they're given power can i interject real quick um okay so i after watching both of them i feel like the common theme with Wicker Man 1 and Wicker Man 2, I guess. Wicker, the, Wicker, Wicker, Man. Man. Wicker Harder. I've, I've, I've been calling it Wicker Main, uh, the 2006 <laughs> one. I think both have the theme of, and this is like a saying, the saying that I'm thinking of is, whiner women will be the downfall of every great hero, right? And Ooh. if you think about both movies, it's the exact case that it is it is women who are the downfall of these guys. In the first one, the cop is so pious that when he sees the topless woman, he gets really mad, right? And it's like I'm he's trying to do his job, but he's surrounded by like this like pagany, flowery, sexual stuff that's happening, you know, and he eventually succumbs to it because he's trapped, right? The second, Mm. the Wicker Main is the same thing where like he's there because of his ex-fiance who knows he'll come and save her. And she also probably knew that he is allergic to bees. They bring that up a lot in that movie. The bee thing from the beginning to the end of the movie, there's that bee motif where like he can't handle it. So for me, watching the the first one, just before we get into that, not the bee scene, Mm-hmm. which I, I just know from cultural osmosis. That's what led me to believe that the first one was going to be some sort of, there's going to be like a gory element or something super uncomfortable at the end because, uh, you know, this it's a remake. Mm, okay. um, so when I watched it, I'm watching it with like, you know, like one eye open kind of thing, waiting for mm-hmm. the, you know, essentially for like the other shoe to drop. And it never really does in that way. And then doing the research, it was saying that like the filmmakers were like, we specifically don't want to make a gory movie. We want to make something that's psychologically more scary. And the, mm-hmm. the whole thing about human sacrifice. And so I, I want to disagree with you, Rich, because I feel like in the in the first movie, when Officer Howie uh, shows up, 
to me, the conflict was, yeah, it was it was the religious conflict where it's this community that's practicing a form of paganism and it opposes his staunch Catholicism, I guess, or Christianity, uh, more broadly speaking. Uh, in any case, he's very pious and all this other stuff. And then the, the problem is like they are essentially not really, I mean, we know that they're being sinister for other reasons, but that alone shouldn't have been the thing that bothers him. However, like his piousness he starts interjecting himself into a lot of things. And that's where Mm -hmm. you start to lose a little bit of sympathy for him because it's like, we get that you're there to do a job, but you're more angry that these people aren't Christians. And that's sort of like just watching it now. You're like, depending on where you're Mm -hmm. at, you're like, maybe I'm not as sympathetic to officer Howie. And I think that when you say he succumbs, I don't think he succumbs to this, the, the whole thing. I think through the end, and this is what differentiates him from Nick Cage is that, he sticks to his guns right to the end. And even though mm-hmm. like he's, you know, he's sacrificed and he's scared, he doesn't waver. He's still like, whatever you do to me, it's not going to change my beliefs. And furthermore, what you're doing to me, and he's calling out Christopher Lee. And this is a great moment with Christopher Lee in this movie where he's calling him out. He's like, you know that when you sacrifice me, the crop will still fail because your strain has failed. It's a science thing. It's not this religious thing and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. And when the crop fails again, after I die, the next sacrifice is going to be you. And you see this, this is the Chris really doing like some amazing, like small acting where he Mm. just like for a second, like looks away because he's like, hmm, processing it. But then out loud says like, no, it'll be fine. But you see, he gives the audience that moment of doubt Mm. where he's like, uh, maybe, maybe he's right. You know, like, because he's already like earlier in the movie sets up, my grandfather came here and we do this and they introduced this belief system here and everyone sort of bought in sort of insinuating that this isn't real as far as what he really believes but he's convinced everyone else that this is what they believe and he's making the sacrifice sort of uh, for show and maybe to buy him more time and i think that that sort of gives like the movie this other sort of undercurrent whereas like the remake is completely spiritual and mystical and all of that is real. And the first one makes it like, you're sort of left as like, is it the science thing? Is there something else like, uh, what's the word of look of supernatural going on? And then the, but the second movie doesn't give you any of that doubt. I think that's actually a very interesting point because that was one of my thoughts when he, instead of when Howie says like next year, when the, when, not if, when the crops fail, um, mm-hmm. like it's going to have to be you that gets sacrificed because there's nothing else that'll be as big. I was surprised he didn't say, okay, well, if that's what it takes to appease our gods, then so be it. So that does also add that little bit of doubt of, is he actually a believer or does he just really like the power structure here and doesn't want to compromise it and needs to do like a power play? I will say that I do think it felt a little bit older, the religion in the 2006 remake, because I think she said Mm. the Ellen Burson character, Lady Samurai, she said that her relatives came there in like the 1600s right, or something like that. So you can really tell that is just like their way of life and how they do things. Um, well, that's going so interesting. I never touching thought on, of it that way. Touching on what you said about the, the you, you call it the fake feminism in the movie. I think that the first one tries to be um, accurate to a form of paganism, whereas the, the remake, they have their own idea and they're sort of using paganism as a catch-all for not you know, traditional Christianity mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. So they, they make the whole thing about the bees. And then there's like the, the queen bee. It was like Ellen Burns. And it's all like the drones and, and all these are bee allegories. I, I feel like the first movie did a better job of trying to portray something that's actually real. And then the second one sort of just took like the Hollywood route and just like, 
we're going to call it paganism, but it's really just going to be like, we're just setting this other thing up. And so when you say fake feminism, I'm, I'm wondering if you're sort of highlighting that it's not really based on anything. It's just a matriarchal. Yeah. And it's not like, thing. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like you understand why in, it's a very different movie, but in Wonder Woman, you get why it's only women. They give you that whole history and you're like, I can mm -hmm. see why they don't want Chris Pine showing up and messing everything up. So yeah, I think that's actually a good point that it's maybe not just fake feminism, but also like fake religion to bring right. up Midsommar, the best oh, movie ever. Like <laughs> even just, you know, seeing the ceremonies and mm -hmm. really feeling the history and, you know, all the tiny little details and symbology that went into it. Like you feel like there is a history there, whereas the Summer Isle in the 2006 version, it kind of feels like it was built in the 70s in a good yeah. way, in a good way. I think I yeah. also, I'm really big on cult shows, like that SNL skit murder shows. I'm bigger on the cult shows than the murder shows. So <laughs> I'm fascinated by them. I've always been fascinated by really? them. Really? And one thing that bothered me a, a little bit with The Wicker Man 1973, but the 2006 Nicolas Cage one is there wasn't a whole lot of set symbology. I think the two culty things that bothered me about the 2006 mm -hmm. one was that everyone felt really spread out. And in cults, the leaders and like the higher ups always want to keep tabs on everyone. So they don't want to have to like travel around all these distances to see like what everyone's doing and if they shouldn't be doing anything. Mm -hmm. And there's also, and this kind of happened in the 73 version as well. There's not a lot like, oh, this person wears red because they're a leader. This person wears blue because they're a farmer. Because I feel like cults have very, very structured societies in that way. And I get that in the 70s version, it was a little bit like free love and like who needs boundaries and restrictions. Mm. And with the 2006 one, it just kind of felt like, like you said, they did this catch all and they didn't actually research, okay, what do cults do to get people in? What do cults do to keep people there? Like, what is the power structure of a cult? I'll agree with you to a certain extent, but I think in the 2006 one, I felt like it was presented more like almost like Amish country. Like, mm -hmm. this is mm -hmm. what we do. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. These are the rules we were born into. And that's it, you know? I also feel like in the 2006 one, compared to the 1973 one, it's very evident that this is a purely matriarchal society, right? Mm -hmm. The men have like limited roles. They do the work, they do the grunt work, and they're there for breeding, right? Like we saw like the, uh, the lumpy dude in the bed and like all the weird guys that are around, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also think upon watching it again, like there were certain scenes that I rewound and I really felt like what the 2006, maybe I'm reading into it too much, what I felt the 2006 one was really trying to hammer home was that every time Nicolas Cage, it, like every time his character, like Officer Malice, went berserk or went nuts, he had male impotent rage the entire movie because he got nothing done. You know, the only thing he did at the end was throw a tantrum and lash out and like he kicked, <laughs> he kicked everybody's ass, which I thought was hysterical. You he, know, like, lit he, he literally kicked everyone's ass. He, he literally he, he became ass. like Taekwondo machine at the end where he was like sidekicking <laughs> and high kicking everyone. He again, I don't condone violence against women. And I feel like it was so cartoony that it's not true violence against women. Like he kicked a lot of ass at the end of that movie. Again, impotent rage because what happens at the end, they already know he's broken, you know, mm -hmm. like and if you think about it, if you remove yourself from it, this was the plan all along from the moment she 
left him as his fiance. Yeah. Well, I think even before yeah. that, because if I'm remembering a shot correctly, the blonde cop that he saw before that like comes to his house to bring his mm-hmm. mail or whatever, mm-hmm. I think she was a member of the cult too that probably like kept tabs on him for the entire time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I was trying to figure yeah. out about this movie, was there a twin motif that I was Yeah, missing? I was going to ask you guys, did you guys catch, what was the twin thing? Because they, yeah. they they threw a couple twins on and they had the, the school teacher and she had a twin and then there were a couple other just yeah. twins. Yeah, and then you never see the school teacher about. twin again, unless they like missed right. her in a shot or something. Well, I think, yeah, I think she comes back at the end where everyone's wearing costumes, but at that point, everyone has changed costumes so mm-hmm. i didn't really <laughs> catch on yeah that i was trying to figure out because i don't my dad is actually starting to raise bees now that it's getting warmer he bought like the whole beehive and the mask and the whole shebang <laughs> so i love your dad like... your dad's awesome <laughs> oh my god he is 60 and thriving 60 yeah, is the new 20 60 is the new 20 especially <laughs> during these times but it was interesting i don't like know anything about bees and like twins Mm-hmm. So I wonder yeah. if there's like an hour of this movie that just ended up on the cutting room floor that explains why there are so many twins. Speaking For of sure. bee, the beekeeping, I, I did dig the the beekeeping outfit that they have and they made them the beekeeping like sh- outfit was cool. I will say mm-hmm. that. They made it to me. I was like, I kept calling them shy guys from Super Mario 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. All right. Get ready for a really lame pun because we'll be right back after this quick commercial break. So stick around. Hey everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it, and go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. And welcome back. So before the commercial break, the guys did a pretty good job of trying to convince me that the 2006 Wicker Man is actually a good film. But as always, I have some opinions I need to get off my chest about this film. Okay, it's interesting. I am giving this movie a little more credit Mm -hmm. now that like we're talking through this. I still have so many issues with it. For example, do do do. Oh, 5327 outside Dr. Moss's house, a very clear insert shot on a soundstage. Why doesn't it feel urgent? There's not a lot of unifying imagery. Why? (laughs) I don't feel the stakes. I don't care about the cage. The one thing I want to say is just like it's to what you were saying earlier was that like every time the movie takes a pause for Nick Cage to react or the the violent parts, you have the basically what is the wrong or not intentional reaction. And I think that's the whole thing mm-hmm. where it, when he gets upset, we're supposed to feel upset with him. And when he gets violent, we're supposed to be uh, disturbed by it. But we're laughing at both. And I think that's the thing. It's like we can't take any of this stuff seriously because I think it's like it's like what are the stakes here? Yeah, and I think none of the scary moments involved the cult enough, if that makes sense. Like the scene in the barn and the bees. I know technically the bees are a part of the cult's life, but mm. when he's just kind of like running into bees. 
they do a really good job of, I think you mentioned in the notes that you sent over about like, there are low to no stakes with this. I'll agree with that. Like they really set you up in the beginning of the flick that something bad is going to happen to Nicolas Cage in this movie. You know, like there's no denying it. And again, like uh, I'm going to bring up my point of impotent rage. Like you kind of get that feeling where it's like, whatever he does, whatever he says, doesn't matter. You know, like he's not going to save the day. You kind of get that throughout the film, like the scene, the tw- the first twin scene, We'll touch on the twin thing again with the, I forgot the actress's name, but she was also in HBO Western. Deadwood? Deadwood. She was in Deadwood. She was in Deadwood. So the lady from Deadwood's there and then he's interrogating the kids and then they're just like, they're kids and they're trained to not give him any information, right? Mm -hmm. And then he goes to the desk and the raven is in the desk and he's like, why would you do that? And then she just kind of gives him like this little smirk, which indicates because we can. And by the way, there's a lot of stuff that we do that's going to blow your effing mind, you know? (laughs) So like everybody in this flick, every story point in this movie makes you think something bad is going to happen to him. And it does. So that there's zero stakes, you know, like Mm -hmm. I never thought at any point during this movie that he's going to save the day. I also didn't really care that he was going to save the day. I wasn't like, oh, you know, like I really hope he gets that girl, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I thought that relationship was interesting with the fiance and then the reveal that the kid was his. So he's even more mentally distraught. And then they flash back to like the car accident, which, and my question to you guys is, did that really happen? I think this is like going out on a limb if the twins Mm -hmm. thing is like very intentional. I wonder if that girl was like Rowan's twin because they looked exactly alike. Mm -hmm. And if the twin was just like a sacrifice of some sort, because one of my other notes too is like, why does this girl look so chill when she is in a burning car? Like she's not even screaming. She's just kind of like, but they said they couldn't find the body. Yeah, that was a weird thing that they that mm. I, I wrote down. They're like, we couldn't find the bodies from the accident that happened on the highway right there. It wasn't like yeah. a shipwreck or something, you know? Uh, it was like, we know where yeah. the accident was. You know, they, it's very localized. I think from the get-go, even in the diner, I think he was, again, I might this might be a reach, but mm. I think he was being slowly poisoned with hallucinogens. Ooh. Yeah. I think to that, like when I said, like, I think this movie did its homework better than the first one is that they set him up as a, a believable mark for the, the cult that mm-hmm. wants to use him as someone who is very like vulnerable, kind of broken. You know, he's got psychological issues that he's being like, he's, I guess he's self-medicating, you know, and mm-hmm. there's all like that part. So it makes you think that, okay, well, if I don't buy the supernatural part, I can at least buy like, this is how they're portraying his mental stability. Because he's kind of like, just as far as like how he goes through everything, he's a bit of a, there's lack of self-awareness. He's kind of a sucker, you know, like, but he's also lonely, vulnerable. So he would be the guy who would go all the way to the the summer aisle to reconnect with his ex-fiance because it's probably like the only person that showed him any sort of affection. But I think that going back to what you were saying before, Rich, about the stakes, we know, and this is probably just because we know the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. The, for both of them is that going in both the protagonists, I was going to say heroes, they're not heroes. They are finished. You know, we know that they're mm-hmm. finished. And I think that yeah. in the first movie, they do a better job of making it sinister and scary because from like the fishermen guys who are all like creepily smiling right from the jump, this guy shows up and he's the target and there's no escape for him. He goes out with his head held high, but he's, he's done. And then with the second yeah. one, Nicholas Cage shows up and everyone's super annoyed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> everyone yeah. makes like, hey what's going on at least once in the movie they go Ugh. like i feel like Molly, do you think the 
teacher was like rolling her eyes a whole lot and the bar lady was just like wow oh yeah the bar lady was yeah she's like uh she was the most annoyed and i loved her (laughs) her energy she's kind of like yeah okay uh have a drink why would you kill a bee what are you doing like okay well here's your sugar like you're not supposed to be here but i guess you're gonna be here it makes me think like going by what you're saying that the ellen bernston lady summer isle character went he's coming everybody act annoyed everybody (laughs) act irritated (laughs) and then like that poor harbor pilot too that was one of the things i was thinking where the beginning of the movie a classic nicholas cage like weird ad-libbing where the guy's like listen i got a good contract on summer isle i don't want to ruin it i'm not taking you there they're very particular you know he probably doesn't know what's going on over there, but he's making deliveries, right? Mm-hmm. And then he goes, well, what about if me and the twins come with you? And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, Ulysses and his brother Grant. So <laughs> this guy gives up his relationship to the island for a hundred bucks. Yeah, he rolls over real quick. Cage. Yeah, he ro- totally rolled over super quick. Just like, yeah, no problem, man, hundred dollars. And I'm like, well, what are these ladies paying him? in honey and peanuts and then <laughs> he gets he gets to the island and they're like well how'd you get here again super irritated very irritated how'd you get here oh, we're gonna have to talk to that harbor pilot and he's like oh yeah it was the guy with the only plane in town uh can i can i go inside he's turning into jeff goldblum um <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was going to say your Nicolas Cage impression is getting better and better throughout this podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm also throughout this podcast. I'm thinking that there's like an hour of this movie that's left somewhere because again, another yeah. twins analogy, Ulysses and Grant. I'm like, where the hell did the rest of like the twins movie go? We're, mm-hmm. we're coming full circle in this. Yeah. And like the twin stuff, the him, I, again, I think he was being drugged. Just his, his presence is so science fictiony compared to everybody on the island because it's it's may it's the beginning of summer it's the pacific northwest he's wearing these suits and i feel like he's just like swampy and swimming in them you know and there's like so much again again like i'm gonna go back to the impotent rage thing and there's just so much to unpack with him interacting with everybody and they're all irritated lady summer isle was so irritated with him and there he poses the question he's like could i exhume the body and she's like i thought i'd I gave you permission already. I think that you're touching on the impotent rage thing. And I I think that really is part of the portrayal of Nick Cage in this movie. Like, I think Mm -hmm. they do a good job of that in the sense that, you know, how he's like I said, he's a good mark. He's very vulnerable. Like he has like a lack of self-awareness and an over exaggerated self-importance. Yes. So he's the guy who's like, when he's talking to his uh, cop friend, he's like, I'm, he's like, oh, well, I got this message. He's like, you're not going to go all the way across country or there in California. You're not going to go all the way over there just for that. And he's like, no, well, maybe I should check it out. And then he's on the ferry putting on cologne and he's wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. thinks he's going to go over there and charm yeah. his way back in. And then he's also like, I'm a police officer. Or I'm investigating murder. And then they're like, yeah, we're not in California. You know, you have an authority here. He's like, oh, I think I do. And they're like, no, you don't. You literally don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he keeps pr- progressing. Whereas like the other guy in the officer Howie in the first movie, like he literally has some authority. Yes. And then in the second one, it's like, yeah, everything he does, like I'm here for- to investigate him or I'm a cop. That doesn't mean anything. I'm here to win back my fiance. Like th- that doesn't mean anything. Nothing he does means anything. And I think that frustration is there. And I think that's also kind of, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be funny, but it is because he's always like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> I think he does that. I think he does that in one scene. I think he gets so stammered that he's like, oh, what? I just want to be left alone. And then the thing I was, I was saying before, you know, like he talks to Lady Summer Isle. She gives him the achy, like you can exhume the body. Your mode of transportation, is, your mode of transport is here. And this dopey guy shows up with like a little bicycle. And the way he gets on the bike is so comical that you know like we were talking before about like is this an intentional comedy he knew what he was doing when he got on that bike he got on that bike like a like a spurned 13 year old boy and just like slammed the wheels down and looked back at her and it was like fine i'm getting out of here you know yeah well that that he's being indignant but it's not it's on purpose he thinks that's really like this is how i'm gonna act i'm making a choice in this scene it's not like i think this is gonna be funny he's like how am i gonna portray you know my frustration with this mm -hmm. i'm getting on this bike and you know like that's it, mm -hmm. it and, and like the side eye like everything he does I, I, you know I, it's comical but i don't think it's intentional i, I think am so fascinated by all this i have to rewatch this now with the whole like male impotence perspective mm -hmm. on it or what you were saying the impotent rage like it really mm -hmm. ties it all together it makes you feel bad for him but again mm -hmm. it does nothing for the stakes in the movie you just kind of no, feel bad doesn't. for him because you know something bad's gonna happen to him mm -hmm. you know and he's he's unfortunately caught up in this very elaborate ruse you know like really elaborate and you know what he's a shitty cop because he didn't see it coming you know what i think you now we're talking about the elaborate ruse is that on the first movie they justify it and then this one they don't so it's like right. they're mm -hmm. sort of playing with him playing with nick cage and then the first one they're like we find out at the end that he has to jump through these certain hoops to qualify for to qualify as a sacrifice mm -hmm. he's got to mm -hmm. do these four things and the ruse is to make him do those things he's already mm -hmm. got the king's uh, authority as a cop he, he came you know willingly so they, they're trying to like you know trick him into doing all yeah, the other he's things he's a virgin i think that was the other thing is that yeah. it was a virgin sacrifice and then the uh with nick cage it's like they've already set him up to be the the sacrifice but he has none of these qualifications like he doesn't have to do these certain things he's mm -hmm. he's already like you're marked we we decided this a while ago we just needed to bring you here so the rest of the movie it's just them screwing with him mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. interesting. So it's almost like because they don't have to make sure he hits all of those markers, it's just kind of like, well, we might as well just like it's almost like the little in the first movie, the little beetle on the nail with the string. It's like we're just gonna like let him do his thing until he torture can't for do torture his thing sake. anymore. Yeah, yeah torture but maybe, for torture sake. maybe that's why they're annoyed because he's like a day early and they're like, Ugh. like <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. I guess like he uh, was supposed to like. He was supposed to have more of a quest to get to the island as opposed to just paying the harbor pilot a hundred bucks. <laughs> well, that's what I thought about the first movie, uh, the 1973 version, was that whole sequence of the plane flying through. It felt like that plane was flying for five days. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Opening sequence, you really feel like, oh, he's very, very far from any help. Mm -hmm. Whereas because he went from basically one state to another state, <laughs> that would mm -hmm. be like if I went from New York to like Fire Island or something and yeah, I was like, yeah. I can't get off. <laughs> that, that reminded me, like I, I was texting with Alex the other day about it and you mentioned, I said, how'd you like the movie? And you said, I'm paraphrasing. You said, it's not as weird as I thought it would be, 
it's the 70s movie making might be weirder. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that like because I wrote down in my notes that the movie feels like this, the original movie feels like a weird episode of the monkeys. Um <laughs> Because it's like that 70s and I have I, I think 70s filmmaking has a lot of charm to it that I, I like because everything is like super tangible. Everything is mm-hmm. is on camera. They're, they have to make everything. I think a lot of the rules, the established rules that we have weren't so established then. And that's why I feel like the movie plays around a lot with like their shot composition and how they uh, where they put the camera and how they're mm-hmm. how free it is to sort of like let everyone do whatever. And then they're just going to like ADR all the pre-recorded music and all this other stuff because it's like th- these are the limitations. So, you know, like talk about the structure of the movie. There's a lot of times where people are just like looking at the camera and then there's like a voiceover and then a musical breaks out. And there's a lot of like weird sort of choices in, in the composition of the movie that would probably not, you know, we would frown upon having these in a movie, you know, in a contemporary film. Yeah. And they just sort of they threw like everything like and just in it's just like a mix, you know. So um, and that's why I think like when you have that sort of inherent weirdness of a movie or, or something like this made in in the 70s, that's and I'm looking at it from now. I think that's the stuff that struck out with me, not mm-hmm. so much the intentional um, sinisterness of, of everything else, you know, because the other thing I was thinking about was that well, I'm looking at this movie years after the fact and also we're like it's a removed from time and also culturally because we're, we're in the United States in the 21st century and this was like a 70s film made for, you know, the uh, the UK essentially. So there are small cultural things that we're not picking up on and also like and it's, so it's like the 70s counterculture free love thing, but also in the United Kingdom. And that's mm-hmm. that's like a nuance that is sort of like I'm just keeping in mind while I was watching it going like this is something that I don't know about but I recognize that it's there you know what I mean yeah, yeah, I was actually thinking about that. This is totally a 180, but I've been watching a lot of Call the Midwife, which is about oh, wow. midwives working in the East End of London during like the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And I'm I never realized just how culturally conservative the UK was during that time. Like, for example, they actually got birth control after the US did, because birth control was released oh, wow. in the US in like the late 50s, and they didn't get it until 1963 or four i can't remember if it was the year that kennedy was shot or the year after kennedy was shot but yeah they were like very culturally conservative it was still illegal to be gay until the 70s and then even after that you had to be 18 to be in a legal same-sex relationship um, right so i think that is kind of one of the cultural contexts or cultural nuances you're talking about alex is the mm-hmm. idea that a lot of england probably was like sergeant owie like very staunch, very religious. This is what's okay. And this is what's not okay. And to see a culture within your own home country, that's just like the total opposite. I don't know why when I'm talking about this island, I'm just like wiggling my body. Like I'm one of those balloons outside of a car dealership. (laughs) But yeah, no, it is interesting to think of that cultural nuance. Whereas in 2006, clearly our society has progressed slowly, but surely since then. Mm -hmm. But it's not like, oh, it took place in the U.S. during the 50s and then he's going to this island where everything is just so different, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that sort of that makes a lot of sense. And I think it definitely puts Officer Howie in a better context and makes his sort of clash of ideologies the center stage of, of the movie. And and I think that's why it works really well with him and Christopher Lee, who we, we haven't really talked about. You know, we oh, should. No, yeah, we need like, to talk about Christopher Lee. My boyfriend uh, will kill me if we don't talk about Christopher Lee. Oh. He's fantastic in this movie. Yeah, well, we, we haven't even done a Christopher Lee impression and mm. we are this far into the podcast. This is Let's hit it. Insane. Give me your Christopher Lee impressions, everybody. All right, go for it. Me first. I I was the one who called it. I'll go first. I'll go first. I'll be the one who sacrificed. 
our crops shall not suffer next year with all sacrifice. That's a good one. I like <laughs> it. They good. tried. That's good. That's good. We Mar- will burn this man. There's more Soromon, but... <laughs> it sounds like Ray Romano. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to burn the this man. Put him in the thing and burn him. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do mine because I'm laughing too hard now. Oh, I'm. La- you know what, though? Laugh or cry during these times. My Yeah, right. Yeah. My, my Chris Rilly impression is very specific because um, there's like... A, a weird alternate costume in Star Wars Battlefront 2 on PlayStation. And whenever I select it, it's like, I have elegant pajamas. And I just do that. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty fantastic. Besides, listen, besides Christopher Lee, we got to talk about Britt Eklund. You know, like Britt Eklund was the, the female lead. She I didn't played the Willow. What a big deal she was until I started doing research. Like, I don't know if she dated Ron Huge. Stewart and was a Bond girl before this. Oh, yeah. Thing. Sex symbol, complete sex symbol. Like, she was the babe, quote unquote. Like at that time, you know, like Swedish born actress, she and I'm, I'm saying this because I love Britt Eklund. You know, she was married good night in The Man with the Golden Gun, which had Christopher Lee in it, you oh, know, so yeah. like and that that movie Man with the Golden Gun came out in 1974. This movie came out in 1973. So it's like, you know, Britt Eklund and Christopher Lee are in two movies back to back pretty much. Yeah. And I, I find that fascinating. But they really capitalize on her fame. And in the 1973 version of this movie they do a good job of juxtaposing the staunch christianity and the staunch that rigorous character with this rampant open sexualism and she played willow you know in the original flick whereas there's zero sexuality in the wicker man 2006 it was like almost like a no-no for the Mm -hmm. most part you know where like the first one really said they didn't shove it down your throat saying like this is how we get sacrifices it's the women you know they present it as like women are the most beautiful thing on the planet there is no way you're escaping you know in wicker man 2006 it's very much like this is how our society functions and this this is what our people do zero sexuality it's just like a job pragmatic sex almost it's like literally just for procreation and nothing else yeah and in the in the remake it makes you know like the post-credit scene just makes it evident where it's like these girls are cute and these guys are dumb that's it. That's that's all we need. That's all we need. We're gonna get these guys on. The, James Franco is gonna be on that island in three years, and they're gonna murder him. You know, the other thing too is like that post-credit scene made me wonder. And I guess like the movie again does set up enough things where you can come to a satisfying conclusion. Where it's like so, they made it so that Nicolas Cage was marked years in advance. Is this something that they have to do all the time? And they're just sort mm-hmm. of like setting up sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Or what part of it is so essential that they always, you know, do they notice that like, oh, like when the first one, it's like we had a bad crop, so we have to do this extreme. Whereas the other one, it's like every five years we got to do this. You know, mm-hmm. is, is that I think in my that's what in it the right read like yeah. to me. Yeah. But yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, are they using the sacrifice as an excuse just to like obliterate all the men in the West Coast? Maybe that's a sequel. Like what's the end game, right? Exactly. Yeah. What is the end game? I think both movies at least did one thing right together in the sense that like they don't let you know what happened. You know, mm-hmm. they don't say like six months later, you know, they're sitting there like eating like honey sandwiches and, and like a big bundle of apples or something like that. You know, they're just kind of like, this is the sacrifice. It was for this purpose. We're not going to show you the result and you're just going to deal with it. And I'm like, I kind of, I can appreciate that. 
as well. I like when movies are very, this is all you need to know. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit in the episode with Four Mile Circus, where it feels like exposition or like explanations have become such a big thing in films these days that everything needs to be explained and everything needs to have a clue. Whereas mm-hmm. in films like The Wicker Man, what you see is what you get. And you don't need to know like, who is Sergeant Howie's fiance? what was his childhood like you know that little sequence is all you need to know about him and everything he does is all you need to know about him yeah and i do appreciate when movies are very not sparse but very bare bones like absolute minimum like yeah very streamlined there's you know they they trim the fat yeah yeah well, also, like, you, I agree with you 100% a lot because it's unfortunate that I have to say, like, you mean movies made pre-social media, you know, yeah. like, because, mm-hmm. like, you jump in and what you said was exactly what my wife said, too, where it was like, oh, that's great. You know, like, you're just, movies were made where you're thrown into a flick and this is what it is, mm-hmm. you know, like when you watch A New Hope, you know, mm-hmm. there's no explanation. It's just, this is what it is, you know? And again, that's like another flick from the 70s. I personally miss that style of filmmaking as opposed to like making something to appease the trolls. If another Wicker Man came out, it would have an hour and 20 minutes of exposition and then 45 minutes of climax. That is a perfect segue into one of my other questions that I want to ask. Did I climax during this movie? Did you guys climax during Wicker Man 2006? Inquiring minds want to know. Um, I was talking about the, like, if you remade it today, putting Midsommar aside, because I also know from interviews, Ari Aster has said he tried not to watch that movie just so it wasn't like an unintentional Wicker Man remake. If you both, and I know this wasn't an included question, so this is a hot take question. Mm -hmm. Take your time. If you both were going to make a Wicker Man remake, who would write and direct it? Who would star in it and what would you keep from either movie and what would you do totally different from either movie hmm. i read i know i know my answer go Ooh. for it because I, I don't have an answer i mean i okay. have a loose answer but let's hear yours guillermo del toro Hell yeah. uh ryan gosling and the flick would be a perfect almost perfect combination of worker man 2006 and worker man 1973 <clears throat> except the Ryan Gosling cop character is very endearing. And I want to say that he almost knows what he's in for. But in my head, in that flick, he doesn't plan on being drugged heavily. Mm-hmm. And when he's drugged heavily on the island is when it basically turns into that 1973 movie with the songs, the open sexuality. And then at some point, he can't, dis- he can't discern between reality and fiction. Mm-hmm. And that's how he gets got at the end. And he still burns. He still burns to death. Burn, baby, burn. So it almost sounds like <laughs> the Inferno. thing that you're taking from the 2006 version is almost like the unreliable narrator. I got a little whiff of the whole unreliable narrator thing in the 2006 okay. version. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I just want to see Guillermo del Toro make some cool shit, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to basically glom on to what Rich said. I think Guillermo del Toro is a, is a great choice for that. And I think the what you were talking about, as far as like mixing in the fantasy with the reality and not knowing the difference is like one of his hallmarks. I feel like that would be great. I think like my question is like what we would see from the sequel is again, like what would be the stakes? You know, I feel like mm-hmm. the first one tells a very contained story where it was like a one and done sort of thing. And then the second one 
sort of branches out and makes it a little bit more broad in the sense that like this is an ongoing thing. So would you set someone else up or, you know, would you continue that sort of thread as far as like we need to bring it over here? Or would you change it where it's like someone finds out and I need to put a stop to it? And to a degree of success would, would you know, would be undetermined, I guess. So I don't know who would star in it. But yeah, I think it's sort of like asking a question of, and I think this is the thing too, where the remake filmmakers should have asked is like, what are we trying to do here? You know, mm-hmm. like you can remake the movie. I feel like it's obviously you can do that because you're retelling one story. I feel like continuing the story something that's so like set doesn't really leave any other questions except for was the crop successful or not you know because it's not like it's not how he officer howie's story it's not the, uh nicholas cage's story you know they are pawns in a greater game and even the the summer aisles of both films seem like tools of a larger thing and i think like what would be the continuation i think the only answer that i have is that both movies do a thing where it's like 80 to 90% of it is set up and then the last 10% is this weird payoff and that's where we get the wicker man which i want to bring up after we do this cuz i want to ask you about that because it's like the wicker man is the title and is this the last thing you see in this movie mm-hmm. um so the sequel would have to continue that in my mind. Interesting. I'm going to go, I'm going to go a little bit in a different direction than you guys. As much as I adore Guillermo del Toro, he is one of my top five Mm -hmm. directors. I'm going to go with the softy brothers. And depending on whether you're supposed to really like Sergeant Howie or the cop character or Mm -hmm. really hate the cop character, I would cast... For, actually, for hate, I would go with Chris Evans because he did such a good job of Ooh. making you just eat him and knives out. Yeah. And I think it'd be really interesting to have that kind of very entitled, very self-confident character slowly but surely get his like confidence and self-assurance stripped away. Huh. If we're supposed to really like Sergeant Howie, I would actually go with another MCU actor. I would go with Randall Park. Oh, love Randall Park. so nice. He just seems like such mm. a nice guy and you always want to like buddy up with him with everything you see him in that it would be hard to watch him. You would mm. want to save him. You would want him to not go down that hallway. You would not want him to like try and save Rowan at the end. Oh, absolutely. You know where it's going. And I picked the Softy Brothers because... I don't want this to sound the way it could sound. I don't enjoy watching their films, but I really appreciate what they do in terms Mm -hmm. of filmmaking. And I think one thing they did so well in Good Time and Uncut Gems is that- Oh, Good Time. Woof. Woof. You want to talk about anxiety for an hour and a half? Like, If you want filmmakers that can set a certain level of anxiety and just maintain it for an entire movie- which is what I think you need to feel in the shoes of the cop character. You need to feel that anxiety of like, what's going on? Is she dead or alive? What are, is this a cult? Whoa! Like, mm. I think the Softy brothers would do a really good job of that while also making mm. everything feel really grounded. That's a phenomenal pick, by the way. Um, also, <laughs> to, to interject, can you do good time for your season three and bring me on so we could talk about that movie? Yes, I will. Alex, good. Have you have you seen Good Time? I haven't seen it. No. Good Time is with Robert Pattinson, and it's a Softy Brothers movie set in Queens, like set basically in Flushing and Fresh Meadows and on Queens Boulevard. You know, effing really, really intense and bonkers. You know, it's very mm-hmm. sad. The Randall Park thing is interesting. I like it, but can you do an hour and a half of hearing him be like, ah, oh, so the bees are in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bees are in this room. 
great. You know, he has that very like low register voice. He sounds exactly. Have you have you seen Hamilton? Yes. He sounds exactly like David Dix. <laughs> they have the most interchangeable voice. Alex, I know you or have not Lin seen Lin Hamilton yet. Would be hilarious because I feel like that's another like guy that everybody loves. And if we saw him be burned oh alive, everyone God. would just be like, oh, my God. But wow. I also think the Softy Brothers, both of their films, without spoiling them too much, have people trying to change the fates that have already been set up for them. Uh-huh. If that makes sense. I don't want to say it's impotent rage as much as there's just this trying to be more of a catalyst in their lo- own lives than they mm-hmm. actually can be. And I think that's a big element of The Wicker Man, too, is Ooh, yeah. they're both kind of talking about how you can only be such an agent of change in your own life. Mm-hmm. I feel like everyone had this moment of just like, oh, so I'm completely useless in my own life. Well, you're talking to two dudes who can talk forever, you know, so give us what you got. I think Uh, she's finding out exactly that and sort of (laughs) ruining the day she invited us to the book. You're going to have a hell of a time editing this, by the way. (laughs) You know, so I think this episode is going to be great. I'm already just like, go. Uh, oh if you were going to recommend either the 1973 or the 2006 version what would you tell people before watching them either if they're just going to watch it separately or as like a double feature comparing the remakes if it were me i think that i would try to tell them and i don't know if this is going to do the movie a disservice or not either of them i would say like forget the memes don't Mm -hmm focus on what you know from the memes um because they they don't do either movies uh any sort of service the first one is a very psychological time specific movie of counterculture and and it's supposed to be sinister and specifically not gory and violent and then the second one whatever sexuality the first one had it removes and replaces with shock and awe and gore and and those aspects whether it's necessary or not i don't know but it's also a very small part of the larger picture also keep in mind that the second movie structurally is pretty sound you know mm-hmm. while there are laugh laugh out loud parts it's not like you know you're laughing at the room where all of it is made bad you know mm-hmm. you're laughing at certain instances because you have nicolas cage as like this chaotic element trying to be serious and the result is unintentionally funny you know yeah that's a very good way of putting it rich sir yes what about you thank you for giving me the dr evil <laughs> oh it's, this is audio it's i'm just sorry um so i would say the way i'd pitch the 1973 flick would be hey if you're tired of choice anxiety with your streaming services and you want to see something kind of bananas from a different time check out Wicker Man 1973. It's fun. It's got Christopher Lee in it. He was Count Dooku. It's got Britt Eklund. She was like a babe back in the day. And, you know, it's a fun little time capsule of a movie, you know, that takes place in like a weird part of history, you know, and it's it's funny saying that because like it's 2021. Alex and I are turning 40 this year. So it's like a very, very, I know it's a very much like 1973. It wasn't too far from when we were born, you know? So it's like, (laughs) it's interesting when you kind of like think about it that way. Alana, you were born in uh, 1999, right? No, I'm 92. So I'm going to turn 30 next year. God bless you. I was kidding. (laughs) I know how old you are. So, and as far as the 2006 Wicker Man, I would say, hey, if you're, I, I would sell it on just Nicolas Cage. You know, like, oh, if you like, if you like Nicolas Cage flicks and really, if you want to see like a really bizarre performance by an actor, 
then check out 2006's Wicker Man. You know, there's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of interesting plot points. There's a lot of really cool set pieces. I thought the island looked awesome. You know, like I, I think too. everything. I thought the production design was really good. Yeah, of the second was, one. Yeah, yeah. There was the the houses and the the landscape was gorgeous. And I was watching it with my girlfriend. She's like, "Can I go there?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you technically can. I'm not right. invited. <laughs> You'd but... end up in the Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "I love it. Everyone here is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is so cool, man. It's just the ladies working. You know, they're, right. they're not getting bothered. <laughs> yeah, right. no one's bothering us. I'm out in nature. That's how. I'm that's wearing how my shy guy costume. Uh, I also one of the notes I wrote also for the first one was jar of foreskins, which was a thing. It was there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, There was like a jar of foreskins in the first movie. They're both weird movies, Alana. (laughs) They're both both very weird movies. I just want to ask this because like, I don't want this to, uh, because if we end and I don't ask this, I'm going to still think about it. The name of both movies is, is the wicker man. And the wicker man is right at the end. It's like that one big selling piece. Does that make an impact? Do you think it's that important to the story? Because I feel like I don't know how important the actual Wicker Man is. You know, I don't think so. I mean, I know that the Wicker Man has some mythology and specifically like European pre-Christianity paganism. I forget exactly mm-hmm. what it is, but apparently, like building Wicker Men as a sacrifice, like was a thing. But I feel like maybe in both movies, if we're being honest, if the Wicker Man was a little more whispered about, such as in Midsommar, and this isn't a giant spoiler or anything, but Mm. there's like a yellow house, like a big yellow barn, basically, that's built before they get there. And then when they get there, they're like, oh, what's this like big yellow house? And they keep on kind of alluding to the big yellow house. And then finally, at the end, it's like the big reveal of what the big yellow house is meant for. So there's a lot more kind of like meaning and ta-da attached to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't even think it needed to be called the Wicker Man. I think that's a very good point. I think it could have been called Cornfields and Barley and Corn Rigs and Barley. Yeah. Like I go back and forth because it's like the one thing is like you don't show it until the end. And it's it's like that big like boom. And even like, you know, Officer Howie's like, Jesus Christ. Well, even in the original it. poster for the original movie, the Wicker Man is on it. Yeah, it's on the so poster. So it's kind of like a spoiler almost. So yeah, it's like, how are you going to set that up as like a big thing? I I, I mean, again, I, I can't, I'm, I don't imagine, I can't imagine what it looked like seeing that on, on screen for the first time in, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like it's on the poster. It's not ever mentioned. It's not like you're building up to like this thing on the horizon where it's like, oh, they're, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it's not it's, like, oh, psst, the Wicker Man. Oh, you don't yeah. need to know about the Wicker Man. Psst, it's not, yeah, man. it's not building like the, the mm-hmm. dread of the Wicker Man isn't being built up, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't see it like assembling it and they don't make allusions to it. It's just like the Wicker Man. It's like, okay, and that's the end of the movie. And and it's like, it's the end of the movie and it's almost like 95% of the movie is this movie and then the Wicker Man is at the end and then they call it the Wicker Man. Then it's sort of like if you called the Avengers movie the Shawarma Shop, you know, just <laughs> at the end. <laughs> It's like all this other okay. stuff, and then like the one thing at the at the at the last bit, you know. Oh, that's a very good point and a very good joke. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I forget which Avengers movie it is, but if you called the Avengers Infinity War, if you called the Avengers Infinity War, like Avengers, the snap. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's more of like a key part of the movie, but there's no like build up to the snap. I think it's a better example mm. because it's like it's the sinister like thing at the end mm. that the whole movie is being built up to, you know. Mm-hmm. I would have liked it if it was called Avengers O Snap. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
I mean, if we go that route, then we can go back to your your pick of Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. and he Nicholas Cage will get into the Wickerman and and wear it like whiskey danger suit, and oh just go God. around and start fighting other Wickermen. <laughs> Oh man, oh, we're gonna gonna man. mash Pacific Rim and Wickerman. <laughs> Wickerman teams up with Woodman and Brickman, and then they fight a big bad wolf kaiju. Oh my god, that's I, my pick for this. Yes, equal. I'm there. Yes, I'm there yes. for it, Alex. You're a genius. Wow. Um, I'm gonna pick that note to end on because I don't know how anything could get more <laughs> exceptional than that. It could get more ridiculous. I'll tell you that. Oh, gonna get very ridiculous. Give us but, a couple of minutes. <laughs> but most important question. Where can folks find you on social media and all other interwebs platforms that you would like them to find you on? Richie, well, you're, you're the one with the. <laughs> I, I'm I think, the one. Yeah. I don't think you've ever called me Richie before. Richie, so Richie, gotta, big wrestling Richie Stambo is what I'm I, Oh my get. god, I got to, uh, I got to unpack <laughs> this. Wrestling Rich, uh, I, like I, don't, it. I don't think I like that. Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, you can find me at BTC Rich on Twitter. That is my social media platform of choice. I'm also on Twitter. It's my whole damn name, Alex Kalugianis. And that's where you can see where I'm up to as far as, you know, it's mostly car reviews and terrible jokes. And uh, yeah. And we will be coming out with our own podcast, Film Class Zeroes, very soon. We're kind of doing the, we're doing the smart thing and we're in the midst of recording our first season. And it's a lot of fun. It's been I a lot see. of fun. Okay. Like I said, we've we've known each other for 20 years and it's about time that we we talked about movies on a larger platform. Unleash it's pretty, your friendship to the world. That's basically yeah. it. We we're basically recording the conversations that we've been having for 20 years and uh we're yeah, we ha- we have a few um episodes in the can. We're crossing T's and dotting I's now and then we'll get to that point. We're like it's like imminent. We're like right there. Yeah. And then yeah. we'll be subjecting ourselves to the internet after that. Sorry. I can't wait to do this. <laughs> no, I'm so excited for this podcast. I'm so excited for this episode to be unleashed onto the world. Thank you guys so, 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 so much for coming by. I will see you at our Creed 2 watch party. Oh my God. Pinky. I can't, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> no, thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. And that is our show for this week. I want to thank Rich and Alex so, so much for stopping by the show and bringing two really interesting perspectives to these films. So what did you think about these films? Let us know either on social media, at Girl Press Play, or in the comment section of your preferred podcast streamer. We absolutely love to hear from you folks. And this is what the show is all about, is starting conversations about films. Tune in to our next episode on April 29th for what will actually be our mid-season finale when we talk with YA writer Joe Mwamba about the original and remake of Disney's Pete's Dragon. Spoiler alert, one of us cried a lot during these films, and you can probably guess who. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe and keep watching movies.
Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Feriolo Fencing, LLC, Mariano Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl Presses Play.